0: If you have your Bibles with you, please turn to uh, the book of James. If you, uh, it's a New Testament book. If, if you're not familiar with the book of James, uh, if, if you have, uh, it's, it's after Hebrews and before First Peter. So if you've gone beyond First Peter, you've gone too far. And it is—I'm uh, excited about this book. I think it's a a book that's going to be very useful to. Uh, us as a body of believers, and it's very useful to uh, the time and age that we live in today. In fact, I I, I think it's really timely, and I I like to describe it as timely and and ethical. And by ethical, I mean that much of the letter that we're going to read through in James is devoted to teaching Christians how to be Christians, Or, said another way, teaching Christians how to act like Christians. For example, James gives 59 commands in 108 verses. So uh, it's very practical when it comes to teaching us about Christian behavior. James reads like an Old Testament wisdom book. In fact, it's referred to as the New Testament book of Proverbs. Because it could be read like basically an array of random sayings with no consistent theme throughout the whole book. Uh, we just finished the book of Colossians. The, the theme throughout the whole book is in Christ alone. Like you can see that thread running through the whole book. Here in James, there is no common thread that runs throughout the whole book. Uh, there is no one consistent theme. But there are grouped teachings that are really helpful for us um the first portion of this book which is uh we're going to start today verses 1 through 18 it focuses on Christians dealing with trials and temptations and as I said that that's pretty useful to us because we deal with those things every single day it talks about what they consist of speaking about the trials and temptations um how we can combat them, God's involvement in them. And I think the one thing that we want to know is his ultimate purpose for them. These are all different things that are talked about concerning trials and temptations um, in verses 1 through 18. Now today, my job is to cover verses 1 through 4. And I want to focus, as I preach to you, I want to focus on the importance that trials have in your growth as a Christian. Uh, trials are extremely important to uh, the growth of our faith. And they're extremely important to, our, to us trusting in the Lord more. And I think that's really important for us to consider and think about because if we're honest with ourselves, we spend a lot of time wishing away our troubles. I know I do. Uh, every time something comes up, and especially if it's something that's come up before, like it's consistent, I just sit there and I'm like, when am I going to be done with this? Maybe you've uttered those words too, or a phrase like that. You know, when, when is this going to be away from us? When is this not going to come up anymore? Any variation of those phrases, we, we're wishing away our trials, not realizing how impactful they are to help us to trust in the Lord more. The reason why your troubles don't go away is because God uses them for your growth. And that's extremely important. So for the Christian, the greater trials we face, and when I say greater, I mean both um, in intensity and also uh, how, however many we face. Uh, so the greater trials we face, the more we learn to trust God um, to provide for our needs. This book has been really helpful for me as I study this week. In fact, I have to be honest, I have not only been studying this week for these couple of uh, verses, but I've been looking at this book for a while, especially verses 1 through 4 in my own personal life. And um, I hope it's as helpful for you as it has been for me. So let me read it, and then I'll, I'll get into the passage. It says this, That is the word of the Lord. Amen. So right off the bat, we verse one, we we get a typical, really typical, non-typical greeting. Uh, I say typical because it's the opening of the letter. Non-typical because it's different than most greetings that we see. First of all, you notice it's very short. It's one verse. Uh, Most of the time we're used to uh, Peter or Paul, who's given these elaborate introductions. There's a lot of theology in it. Uh, a lot of even explanation as far as what the letter is for, great, goes into great detail. And here, James, right off the bat, just uses one verse. He says, James, a servant of God and the Lord Jesus Christ. And then he speaks to those are, th- that he's sending this letter to. He says, to the 12 tribes in the dispersion. Now, instead of just passing over this one verse, I think it's important for us to dig in and understand Um what's being said here and, and why it's being said. Most theologians believe that the author of this book is the Apostle James, um, obviously because it's named after him. But this Apostle that, that is speaking about here is the actual brother of Jesus. Uh, James was considered an early church father along with Peter and John. When you read the book of Acts, you see uh, you see James involved a lot, and you always see him as As one of the leaders, he is most of the time equivalent to Peter. And so he was the leader of the church in Jerusalem, but he was also a member of the Jerusalem council. Uh, We see that in Acts chapter 15. His nickname was James the Just for his uh, piety and reverence that he displayed for the law. And also something interesting about James is that there is no indication that James was an actual believer during the, the lifetime of Jesus. And when I mean lifetime, you know what I mean. So, during his, his incarnation, uh, there, is no, there is no evidence that he was an actual believer. However, it is widely believed that he became a believer after the resurrection and ascension of Christ. And scripture says that Jesus appeared to James... First um, Corinthians chapter fifteen. I'm going to take the time to read this today because I, I think it's important to understand why, uh, to understand what James is, is is proclaiming and saying here in verse one. First uh, Corinthians fifteen verses three, three through eight. These are the words of Paul. He says, "For I delivered to you as of first importance what I received." That Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures. That He was buried, and excuse, that He was buried, and that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that He appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve, then He appeared to more than five hundred brothers at one time, most. Of whom are still alive, those some have fallen asleep. Look at verse 7. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. So as we look at this passage, there's one thing that we can make clear. James was not an apostle beforehand. It doesn't mean he wasn't a believer. But there is nothing in scripture that tells us that he was a believer. What we can gather from this passage is that after Jesus appeared to him, after his death, um, it changed his life. And he went from, if we want to even dare say, he went from an unbeliever um, to a believer. Or we could just say that he went from a believer to an apostle afterward. Either way, it's, it's pretty remarkable of what happened to James and how it happened to him. It it, it points to the impact that Christ can have on one's life. Uh, If you even look at your own life, think about and consider who you were before Christ and think about who you are now after Christ. It's a wonderful thing to see uh, the Spirit move in people's lives when they come face to face with Christ. Now, after Jesus appeared to James, it it changed his life forever. Whatever way he viewed his brother Jesus beforehand, after Jesus appeared to him, he saw Christ in a different light. And you can tell by the way he opened this letter. He says this. He says that he is a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, You may look at that and say, well, that's just a really quick statement. It seems like a general introduction, and there's nothing more to talk about there. Well, there is a lot to talk about there. Number one, there are a couple implications from his statement about Jesus. First of all, notice that he says that he is a servant of God and Jesus. By him stating that he was a servant of God and Jesus... That meant he saw Jesus as equal to God. Now, that's pretty miraculous because this is his brother that he's talking about. You know, he grew up in the same house as Christ. And, and you know that family knows each other like no one else does. We know the good, the bad and ugly between one another because we're just consistently around that person. We see that person's best and their worst. So this speaks to the testimony of of, of Jesus' life. That James could look back at his life and say, you know what? He he was God. He was God in the flesh. If we, I mean, to me that's that's awesome proof of, of, of the holiness of Christ. His own brother has come to the acknowledgement that Jesus. Is God. He was professing that his brother was God in the flesh. Second of all, he referred to Jesus as Lord and Christ. A lot of times we say Jesus Christ as if that were his name. Jesus is his name, but Lord and Christ are his titles. So essentially what James is stating here in verse 1 was that he was a servant of God, the Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. Christ, In other words, he is the servant of God, the Father, and the Son, who is Lord and Savior of his life. By his statement, James introduced his readers to a couple of foundational pillars of the Christian faith. That Jesus is both God and Savior of our lives. In verse 1, James also identified his audience. He wrote to the 12 tribes in the dispersion. Now, the 12 tribes are symbolic here of the 12 tribes from the Old Testament. If you go back and read, you'll read a lot about the different the, the 12 tribes. Uh, dispersion is translated from the word diaspora, which means converted residents of a Gentile country. So essentially, we could read this as, to God's people who are living abroad in Gentile territories. Now, this letter is considered a general epistle because it was meant to be circulated amongst these scattered believers. They were to read it, learn it, memorize it, and teach others it. But these scattered believers were living in Gentile territories. And his message in this letter, especially verses 1 through 4, were extremely vital for their life and faith as scattered believers. Before I dive into verse 2, I like this to make the analogy here, or to make the connection here. Like these believers, we are also living abroad in this world. We're told in scripture that we're not from here. That we have a home and that home is with our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. So our home is in heaven. We are wandering through this world. So I think the advice that James gives this church and I will say church because we know that the church is not a building. It's it's the people. So the advice that James gives to the church is also helpful for us as we live this life and as we live in a foreign world. So verses 2 through 3, this is what he says. He says, first of all, for them who are, who are living abroad in a, in a hostile environment, who are separated from everything that they know, who are scattered, maybe they're missing family, they're missing their home, they're missing pretty much everything. This is what he tells them in verse 2. He says, count it all joy. Count it all joy. He says, count in all joy, my brothers, which translates to brothers and sisters. So he's speaking to the church in general. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. Now, as we look at verses 2 and 3, there are clues in this letter that describe um, the trials these believers were facing. When you look at the book as a whole. If you look at the book, if you read the book and you can, you can scan the book and you can get some, uh, some, some details or s- some different things that James points out throughout the letter that help us to understand what they were going through. I'm going to start uh, from the back and kind of go to the front. But um, chapter 5, verses 4 through 6, we see that uh, because of their poverty and because of their oppressed conditions, wealthy, non believing, landowners were persecuting them. Since they were not from that area, they they moved. They had to move because they were being persecuted. They had to move for various reasons. Um, They had to settle for whatever they could afford. Obviously, they were being taken advantage of. And that is what James is is, is writing them to encourage them, to help them through this. Uh, These rich people had hauled them into court. Chapter 2, verse 6 talks about that. And they were being scorned for their faith. Chapter 2, verse 7 speaks about that. And James' purpose was to encourage these believers amid these difficult circumstances. And he also wrote them to remind them of God's righteous judgment on the wicked. Chapter 5, verses 7 through 11. And to encourage them to maintain their godly lifestyle and to... Maintain their faith through their trials. Chapter 1, and that's the verses that we're looking at today, verses 2 through 4. Well, as we all know, there are two basic ways that we can respond to trials. Especially when we are talking about trials of the persecution type. There's the godly way, and then there's the other way. There's the godly way, and then there's the worldly way. And I use that term I borrow that term from James because he uses uh, that term a lot in this letter, the the term world. So there is a godly way and then there is the worldly way that we can respond to trials, and to persecution. And I like the way James carefully and purposefully taught the godly way for these believers to respond. He says, count it all joy when you meet trials of various kinds. When you look at the phrase "count it," it's translated to read as consider it or regard it as. So consider it or regard it as. His initial command to these believers was for them to consider it a joyous occasion when they met trials of various kinds. I don't, don't know about you, but that doesn't sound much fun to me. In the words of the little theologian, Lily Gilden, that sounds like sad fun. That's how she describes things that are not so fun, but we're supposed to look at them as fun. It's sad fun. How can we, how can we count it all joy? Something that is so difficult to go through, something that is that is hurting us, both physically and spiritually. How can we count that as joy? Where does James get that from, that he can give that kind of advice? And I'd like to know how well he's following that advice. Right, because it's easy to say that that's that's my initial thought when I read that. That I'm supposed to count it all joy when I meet trials of various kinds. See, even though that's our initial reaction, we can, if we stop and we think about it and we look through the lens of faith, we can see how helpful these words are. Especially if we pay close attention to what is being said by him. First, Since this was a command, and that's what it was, it was a command. Since this was a command, it shows us that this was not something that these believers would just do. This is not something that comes natural to them or to us. It's not normal to be joyous when facing trials. In fact, we have to be commanded and reminded by God to do it. All the time, it it, it doesn't matter how much we grow as a Christian, our initial response is not going to be, yay, I'm going through this again. It's just not going to happen. The initial response is going to be what it is. And yes, that is based on your maturity as a Christian. But we're not going to respond to every trial perfectly. There is going to be a lack of faith at times. There is going to be doubt. There is going to be unholy anger. There is going to be these things. But as we sit there and we think about our situation, as we start counting our blessings, as we pray, as we dig into God's word, we can get to the point where we count our trials as a joyous occasion. second the nature of the command also points to the necessity to obey it regardless of how we feel about it notice james doesn't say hey if you will you do me a favor and count it all joy as you face trials of various kinds please just try your best try your best to do that it's not what he says not what he says. He says, this is what you have to do. This is what you have to do. So that means despite how we feel or how things look, God is commanding us. I'll make it personal. God is commanding you to regard your trials as a joyous occasion. He is speaking directly to us and he is commanding us to do that. Now, again, why would James command the church to do something like that? Was he asking them to do something that was impossible? Maybe was he asking them to do something that was unbiblical? A lot of people look at James and they're like, I, I don't like reading the book of James because he's too harsh. It's like too black and white. It's, it's, he, he's legalistic. He's anything far from legalistic. I think I think a great way to describe James is very practical. So his commandment that he's given to the church, it's very possible. His command and his teaching were not unbiblical. Why? Because they lined up with his Lord and Savior's teaching. Turn with me to Matthew chapter five. There are six verses I want to look at there. I'm sorry, not six. There's two verses I want to look at there. Matthew chapter 5, verses 10 through 12. I want to see us, I want to see, I want us to see the connection here, how similar James, what James is saying versus what Jesus has said. Matthew 5, verses 10 through 12. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake being persecuted speaking of trials for theirs is the kingdom of heaven blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account that's a pretty good description of what's going on here with these scattered believers. So James is not just pulling this out of anywhere. He's going back to what he heard his brother teach, what his brother said. And this is what Jesus said about that. Rejoice and be glad. Did you catch that? Rejoice and be glad. Here's all this trouble. Jesus taught, blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all Kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. To that Christ said, rejoice and be glad. James is saying, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. See, Jesus goes on, rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven for they so for they for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Now, the reason for rejoicing or the reason for regarding our trials as a joyous occasion is founded on the fact and, and this is this is the most important thing that we have to remember. The reason why we can rejoice while we face trials of various kinds is not because we know it's going to work out the way we want it to it's not because we can name and claim anything we want it's not because we can speak to God and command him to do something on our behalf it's not because we're the super christian and we have this super faith and and we're going to we're going to work this out for ourselves Those are not the reasons why we can rejoice while we face trials, or to be joyous while we face trials. See, the reason why we can do that, and I want to borrow from what James is saying, and also what Christ said in Matthew chapter 5. The reason why we can rejoice is because there is a reward, but that's not even the reason why we rejoice. We rejoice because there is somebody to give us a reward. Not the reward itself. Jesus says rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven. That's awesome. That's great. Whatever that is, I can't wait to get that. But that's not the point of my rejoicing. That's not the point of the the joy that I have in my heart. The fact that there is somebody who is over everything. The fact that there is somebody who is sovereign over everything. The fact that there is somebody who is looking at everything and keeping record of everything and who will right all wrong. The fact that there is a God that is going to reward us. That is the reason for rejoicing. So essentially... It's because we belong to the Lord that we can find joy in any and everything. That That has to be your number one thing. Whatever it is you're going through, it, it, I mean, how horrible it might be, however horrible it might be, you can find joy in it because you belong to the Lord. If, if you did not belong to the Lord, then there would be no joy. But because you are his and he is yours, you can find joy in your circumstance. That doesn't mean you have to completely love everything that's happening to you. But you know you can trust the one who's in charge. It doesn't matter what trials we face. The Bible tells us that nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. You can name your troubles off. Are you are are you experiencing death or maybe a death of a loved one? Bible says neither death nor life can take us away from Christ. Are you being tormented? Are you being spiritually attacked? The Bible says nor angels nor rulers can take us away from the love of Christ, from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Are you being haunted by something today or maybe something you've done in the past or maybe you're afraid of something that's coming up in the future? The Bible says, nor things present nor things to come can take us away from the love of God through Christ Jesus our Lord. It also says, nor powers, nor height, nor depth or anything else in all creation. See, the fact that we belong to him yeah, we can find reason for rejoicing. We'll cry. We'll hurt. We may think God is not there. We may feel alone. We'll go through all those emotions. We'll go through all those feelings, but we we have to come back to the center. And we once we come back to the center, we realize, oh, yeah, I belong to him. He has dealt bountifully with me. He has been so good to me. I, I, even though I had this lapse you know, of, of, of judgment and, and I, I'm not thinking straight or I wasn't thinking straight, now I, I come back to his word. I come back to my faith. I come back to my trust in God. I belong to the good shepherd. I am his. It's going to be okay. As David put it in Psalm 34, delivers him out of them all. Foundationally, the reason the church can find joy in troubles of various kinds is because we belong to God. To anything we face, we can say this too shall pass. It's going to pass. But that's only because we belong to him who remains forever. But there's also a secondary reason for joy amid trouble, and it's found in God's purpose in that trial. Look at verses three and four. Let me reread them again. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. The word testing that James uses denotes a, a really interesting process from the Old Testament. It's a process of refining silver or gold. And the heat is used to separate the impurities from the precious metals so that they could be removed and discarded. I want to borrow from the words of Douglas Moo, who is is the author of the commentary on James. Uh, The commentary that I use for this sermon is the Pillar New Testament Commentary. And he's the author of that commentary. And this is what he says concerning verses three and four. He says, the difficulties of life are intended by God to refine our faith, heating it in the crucible of suffering so that impurities might be refined away. And so that it, which speaks what he's speaking about our faith, might become pure and valuable before the Lord. You see, James talks about testing here. And the purpose of God's testing, it's not to determine if a person has faith. If you think about it logically, God already knows if we have faith or not because faith comes from him. Faith is a gift from him. So it's not to find out if we have faith, but rather it's to purify the faith that we have. So James says, for we know that the testing of our faith produces steadfastness so as you think about this what James is talking about is okay first of all we can we can be joyous in our trials because we belong to the Lord but we know that when we are tested by God that that testing not to see if we are on authentic or not but rather it's to purify the faith that we have so it's removing all the things that are not good all the things all the impurities that need to be removed they're floating to the surface and then they're being removed and you have this genuine faith that is revealed so good bad or ugly this was awesome about going through trials there are no wasted opportunities when it comes to God. Because trials not only come during bad times, also during good times. We don't realize that. We can form idols during good times. A lot of us equate good times to when times where we have enough money, we have enough stuff, we're comfortable. Well, what's the trial there? Well, you worshiping that condition. You worshiping those things that make you comfortable. We, we, yeah, we know trials come during bad times, but also during good times. God uses all those things. There are no wasted opportunities with God. When he tests us with trials, he intends to help us and not hurt us. When we go through trials of various kinds... God uses that trial, whatever it is, to expose our sins, to lead us to repentance, and to build steadfastness or perseverance in us through trusting him more and more. You hear the term waiting on God. And Waiting on God is neither an idle task nor is it an easy task. Waiting on God describes us trusting in God as we live out our life and our calling. That's what waiting on God is. It's us being active. As we struggle to deal with the here and now. As we struggle to put things together in our lives, as we struggle just to put one foot in front of the other to get through this sin, get through this problem, as we're trying to do that every single day, you may not realize it, but you're learning to trust God more through that situation. Even if it means you're barely crawling ahead, you're you're barely you're striving forward, you're still learning to trust God. Now think about this. That done over and over and over and over again leads to strengthening. It leads to maturity. And speaking about our topic today, it leads to spiritual maturity. It leads to a well-rounded faith that has been refined by the process of of going through that trial over and over and over again. So you may look at what you are going through and say, what's the point? Why does God keep this around? Why haven't I been able to get this out of my life? But I think if you're just looking at that, you're missing the point. I think if you back up a little bit, or maybe if you back up a lot, you may see that trial in your past, But you'll also see a different person in yourself. Because the way you dealt with that trouble or that trial five years ago, 10 years ago, 15 years ago, if you're in Christ, I guarantee you're dealing with it in a different way. There's been growth. You may be struggling with it, but yet God is doing his work in you. So here is the question. What trials are you enduring today? Although you will experience pain and suffering from your trials, you can find joy in that number one, you belong to God, and number two, that God is using your trial to grow your faith. Let's pray.